And we are live. All right. Welcome, ladies, gentlemen, brethren, all. Welcome to the Working Tools Podcast, a conversation on Freemasonry. I'm your co-host, Stephen Chung. All right. Hey. Welcome. Well, hang on a second. Brethren, all. Welcome to the Working Tools Podcast, a conversation on Freemasonry. There we go. Sorry. I'm playing in the background. Again, I'm your co-host, Stephen Chung, a past master from Prince Charles Lodge here in Kelowna, British Columbia. And with me today is Right Worshipful Brother Trevor McEwen from the Grand Lodge of British Columbia and the Yukon. Now, first, it's important to note that our opinions and thoughts are our own and not those of our Grand Lodge or respective craft lodges or concordant bodies. Um, and I'd like to ask now, if you do enjoy our uh, podcast, please review us on uh, YouTube. It's really important. It helps our ratings. Now, uh, on to today's topic, Masonic um, Myths and Legends Explored. I uh, am thoroughly uh, going to enjoy this conversation with uh, Right Worshipful Brother Trevor McEwen because he has a wealth of knowledge, not only in that brain of his, but in that computer of his. And I started perusing some of your uh, library on the Grand Lodge website, and it's pretty extensive. Uh, I'm, I'm enjoying the things I'm finding. The Grand Lodge website is something that we put up, oh, I don't know, 1996, I think. The uh, So that's almost 25 years, almost a quarter of a century, collection of, uh, well, we put up a lot of the myths, although we try, try to clearly mark them as such. We have uh, a couple of hellos from Kyle Ratz uh, and Connor. Says hello to Trevor. Hey, hey, back at you. So uh, you say there's some that we put out there and some that uh, are just common out there. Uh, let's delve into one. Um, pick one. Okay. Well, as I as I was telling you before we went live, there are two kinds of myths out there. There are those that we've been telling our, uh, about ourselves, and there are those that others tell about us. Myths that we've told ourselves, which have gotten out into, into uh, popular knowledge, are such things as we actually built King Solomon's Temple, or that we originate with the Knights Templar, uh, or that we originate with the Rosicrucians which is a term I don't particularly like, because there, when you say the Rosicrucians, you imply that there was some sort of historical organized body when there were any number of Hermeticists out there who weren't even aware of each other. And if any of them had anything to do with Freemasonry, uh, that's a little thin on the ground as far as evidence is concerned. But certainly, and this is the problem with the internet, many people have published books over the years our Grand Lodge Library is filled with books uh, with various opinions and theories and ideas about our origins. And one of those books gets published and then it disappears into a library. If it has any basis on fact, well, other people will write books and it will carry forward in our, our corporate history, if you will. But if it's not uh, factual, if it's only someone's opinion, well, it sort of fades back into the history. On the internet, someone posts their opinions, and it can be up there forever. Uh, it becomes a cobweb. Right, once it's there, it's there, and you know, for years people can find it, right? 
So let's go to that first one there, King Solomon's Temple. We, uh, you say we sit that out there, though. Well, so the principal metaphor uh, within Freemasonry is a legendary, which is to say, made-up uh, event in the construction of King Solomon's Temple. Uh, the we tend not to talk about it, uh, the specifics of it, although it's all over the internet now and has been published in books for many years. But <clears throat> it is simply that. It's a story. It's a legend. It's a, it's a creation myth, if you will. But I would suggest that um, 150 years ago, um, perhaps even to this day, there are those members who take it as fact. Because the myth has been written within our ritual in such detail, it becomes real in their minds. So we have, in any number of books, talked about how that is part of our history or is our, our origins story. This means that non-Masons, of course, are going to take us at face value on that. And they also cannot distinguish between uh, Freemasonry's position on any given topic and individual Freemasons. And in fact, it's very difficult for some non-Masons to understand that individual Freemasons have complete freedom, free will, freedom of thought to say anything and to hold any opinions they might have about Freemasonry, whether or not it's the official party line. So a, a writer who claims to be a Masonic authority in the sense that he's, uh, he is knowledgeable about Freemasonry, is not necessarily an authority in the sense of a leader of Freemasonry or represents Freemasonry. And this can become very confusing to non-Masons. So the story is out there that we created, that we were created as or existed as part of the building of King Solomon's Temple. And that allows those who don't like us for whatever reason, we can talk about that later, People who at one time and today are still called anti-Masons, but which are now, we prefer the term, um, <laughs> can I pronounce it? Masonophobes. Masonophobes, <laughs> Masonophobes I think is the word that, uh, that Robert Cooper of the Grand Lodge of Scotland refers to them. Um, they can take that legend and then see that uh, one of the world's hotspots politically uh, for many years, of course, has been Jerusalem. And the story gets around that we want to, or our mandate, or our goal is to rebuild King Solomon's temple. It doesn't help any that occasionally some Freemasons have thought that. And there are newspaper articles, and I can't be specific, but somewhere in the mid-eastern states i don't remember exactly where but there was at one point a group that got together to try and raise funds to build and to promote the idea of rebuilding king solomon's temple well it didn't go anywhere uh and it had no authority or did not have the, the imprint of, of the grand lodge of whatever jurisdiction that was but it got a few headlines in the popular press which means it's not that difficult for other newspapers to pick up the story because it's a good story. And it's not difficult for gullible Freemasons to then read that and say, ah, that's actually happening. And that's how myths grow even more so. 
So yeah. Now you mentioned no. Who wouldn't like us? Come on. A lot of people don't like us uh, for many, many reasons. So let's talk about our real history. We can trace our origins to the stonemason guilds of England, Scotland, and Ireland. We can go back uh, with actual documentations to the 1500s. We can, with some stretching of um, opinion, we can go back to the 1400s. There are those who believe that we can be seen, our work can be seen in the building of York Cathedral in the city of York, moments after the Norman conquest in, in 1066. Uh, they started building York Cathedral in, in 1080, 1088, something like that. And there is some on-the-ground evidence that there were lodges of stonemasons or Freemasons, workers in freestone, that's the fiddly bits that make up the gargoyles and all of that, who had some sort of, call it an inner tradition within, um, within their lodge. Uh, they did obligate their entered apprentices. It certainly was nothing like what Freemasonry is today or 200 years ago or 300 years ago when we became organized in 1717 in a Grand Lodge system. But there is some evidence that maybe that's where our origins can be found. So there's no reason to dislike us, except those stonemasons had a couple of interesting ideas. One, they took an idea from those groups in, uh, in Scotland and Ireland who believed that they should be allowed to elect and choose their own leaders. So that immediately puts Freemasonry at odds with, or the Stonemasons Guild, at odds with the powers that be. Whether it's the church, whether it's the state, both those groups want to tell people what to do. Certainly did in the medieval period. So if you've got a group of men who can tell them no, we're going to choose our own leader. We're going to get together once a year. We're going to elect a grand master. We're going to, as is the tradition in, in Northern England, in Scotland and Ireland, to have our annual meeting uh, uh, to have our trials, to settle disputes, to make contacts and network, to make decisions for ourselves, because we're the only ones qualified to do that. And not only are we going to do that, but we're going to do it in privacy. We're going to go into a room and close the door and you don't get to hear what we're talking about. So the powers that be, of course, did not like that. And there were any number of attempts by English kings over the 14, 15, 1600s to, uh, and as late as, as Queen Elizabeth I, to um, not so much to suppress, but to break up the authority of the Stonemasons Guild. And that's the other point, is the Stonemasons Guilds had a fair amount of power because they had some specialized skills. There were a lot of trade guilds, and they had their own secrets. You know, the, the dye makers had their secrets of how to get their dyes. But building cathedrals, building fortresses, building castles, that took some incredible skill. That took knowledge which was not readily available in medieval Europe. This is part of the myth that we somehow claimed that we had this knowledge handed down to us 
from the Roman artificers or back to Egypt or back to King Solomon's temple. Maybe it's true, but it's certainly an opinion. There's absolutely no demonstrated evidence of that at all. So that power, knowledge is power, allowed the stonemasons guilds to set their own rates, their own fees to a certain degree, and simply to call the shots as to how they were dealt with by the government of the day and by the church. Um, so those groups disliked this. As soon as we became organized though, so 17, and around 1700, we started turning up in the newspapers of the day. Whenever anyone does something privately, the immediate question that everyone else asks is, what are they up to? And often <clears throat> we think of the worst because privacy quickly becomes secrecy and secrecy in people's minds very quickly becomes secretive, which is a different word, a different meaning, but that's the way we get talked about. People will think the worst about anything they don't know. People fear what they don't know. They certainly fear a group that appears to have a fair amount of authority, a fair amount of power at that time in dictating their own affairs, but to this day, because many of our members have chosen uh, to belong to Freemasonry, but many of our members who have joined have come from the public sphere. They have been the shakers and movers in society, not because they were Freemasons, uh, but because they had the drive, the knowledge, the skills, the position, whatever, to do that. And they found in Freemasonry something of value, something that every Freemason finds of value in Freemasonry. But to a non-Freemason, it looks questionable. It doesn't yeah, help them. And, that, and that's why they kind of think that we join Freemasonry in order to further our, um, our own ventures and um, lives. Very much so. And the, the first exposures of our ritual, now we became organized as a body in 1717, United, the first Grand Lodge of England. Almost immediately, well, even before then, there were exposures published in the newspapers, but by the 1730s, there were books being published of all our rituals. Now, because our rituals were mostly mouth to ear, an oral tradition, we didn't write most of it down, we've actually had to rely on some of these exposures to decide what our early ritual actually was. But it very quickly becomes apparent that many of these ex exposures were just making it up as they went along, and they were also changing the meaning of some of the words. So in our ritual, and I don't think I'm giving away any big secrets. As I say, the ritual is all posted on the internet somewhere. We, we tend not to talk about it. And a slight digression, if I may. People seem to think that Freemasonry has a great secret. We don't. What we have is basically some secrets that we have sworn not to discuss regarding our modes of recognition, passwords, secret handshakes, that sort of thing which is all out there. They've been published in the 1990s on the front page of The Guardian in London. They've been published in magazines, so there's no secret about them. Where the power in Freemasonry is, is that we have sworn not to discuss it. Now, we're not going to be so naive as to believe they're not out there, 
But the fact that I will not discuss those with a non-Mason doesn't speak to any value in those secrets. It speaks to the value of my word, of my fidelity, of my bond. And right. that's what it's about. It's not about any silly handshake. It's about the fact if I've sworn not to divulge that, you can assume, not necessarily, but you might assume then that my word is my bond. And if I tell you I won't discuss something with someone else, I won't. Right. And that's the power of Freemasonry is that we believed in a privacy act before there was ever a privacy act. That's <laughs> yeah, that, that's a good way to call it, eh? a privacy act. Yeah. So that was a digression. I make a lot of digressions, and now I've completely forgotten what we were talking about. <laughs> Uh, people not liking us and the fact that there actually are some. So the church has never liked us. Certainly the Catholic Church didn't for a number of reasons. So they've generally been the first to attack us because we have, and again, try not to make this a digression, but we over the years have developed a, not universalist, but a universal idea that the followers, the adherents, practitioners of all religious faiths are equally entitled to our respect and our regard. And they're all entitled to ask to become a Freemason, to petition to be initiated into a lodge. So we're not saying that all religions or all gods are equal. That's not within our purview to make that opinion. Freemasonry can't do that. But we can say that every man, regardless of his religious belief, if he qualifies for a Freemason, is entitled to be a Freemason. So religions, though, are generally pretty jealous. They, as far as they're concerned, their God is the only God. There is no other God. Their way of worshiping God or appeasing God or talking to God is the only way that they don't, quite frankly, respect any other body's uh, way of doing that. Yeah, we, we actually... Freemasonry, Says we, we actually Sorry. had a member that had moved away and come back. And um, as he was in the process of getting involved again, he was he actually received a letter from the Catholic Church telling him that he would, uh, if he continued, he would not be wel welcome to take communion at church. And um, he that, cannot approach communion. Yeah. Right. Um, the the uh, canon law, uh, Roman Catholic, and we've got to specify Roman Catholic because there's 14, maybe more different Catholic groups out there. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church in canon law is very, they don't mention Freemasonry by name anymore. They changed that Vatican too, but they do uh, clearly interpret canon law as prohibiting uh, anyone, any Catholic from being a Freemason. So they continue that to this day. That's as much for political reasons when it comes to the Catholic Church. But to finish my thought, where we accept as equal any practitioner or follower of any religion. So those who are just naturally afraid of us, concerned about us, don't like us, will twist that to say that we say that all religions are equal. We don't say that. We're not entitled to have that opinion. Freemasonry has no way of doing that. Freemasonry itself is not a religion. It simply accepts men who believe in a supreme being, and we stop that discussion there, as you as a Freemason would know. 
So that's one of the reasons why, because we accept people of all faith and those who have a jealous regard for their own faith don't want their members associating with members of other faith, unless they're trying to which convert is, them. And we, of which course, Which is kind of sad it. when you think about it. Um, it is, because there are yeah, a lot of good men. And, you know, I mean, uh, I don't know. I, I think that the fact that they make them choose is really sad to begin with. But uh, we have a question from one of our viewers. Uh, uh, it's why is faith or God such a big part of Freemasonry? Well, um, why not? <clears throat> we de we defined ourselves. I tend to define Freemasonry as just a bunch of guys who want to hang out with each other. So. Who do you want to hang out with? You want to hang out with people who are, in the main, similar to yourself in terms of values, in terms of beliefs. I mean, obviously, you don't want to succumb completely to groupthink, and you want to have the opportunity to talk to people with different ideas. But generally, you want to hang out with people you feel comfortable with. So, since day one, Freemasonry has been about faith. We require a belief in a supreme being. Now, there are those Masonic jurisdictions, the biggest group of Freemasons in France uh, does not require a belief in a supreme being. And for that reason, just about every other jurisdiction around the globe no longer recognizes them. That was back in the 1800s. But why is faith so important to Freemasonry? Well, because obviously faith is important to Freemasons. And we attract members who are interested in that. If you're not interested in that, you're not going to join Freemasonry, or certainly you're not going to find anything within our ritual that's going to interest you. So it's, it's sort of a circular logic, but that's who we are. That's how we define ourselves. We, we have a, a strong belief that there is a supreme being, Although each member is free to come to this in his own way, within our ritual, in the main, we talk about that, that supreme being, that Godhead, being benevolent, um, being an active force in this, uh, in this world, uh, you know, omnipotent, omnipresent, uh, and that underlies our purpose of working towards what we believe is the goal of humanity is working together in harmony, coming to agreement. And as we build ourselves individually uh, to de develop that sense of charity within ourselves, charity not in the form of philanthropy, but charity of a love of God expressed through love of humanity, we can develop that, nurture that, within the lodge structure, within the tiled closed lodge, and then take that out into the real world and individually, hopefully, make a difference in the real world. Well, here, That's our here's faith. one for you. So they say, well, you know, we say that Freemasonry is not a religion. We don't, uh, we don't uh, follow any particular religion. We encourage them to uh, follow their own faith. People ask, well, you have a... a Masonic Bible on your altar. Uh, is there a real difference uh, from our Masonic Bible that sits on the altar to any other Bible that is uh, out there in print today? So it's interesting that the only people who ever use the phrase Masonic Bible 
are generally Masonophobes, are people who are opposed to us. We do not use that term. What is required is a volume of sacred law on the, on the altar. It has to be open, not to any particular spot. Uh, in most North American jurisdictions, uh, not all of them, it has to be a, uh, a Christian Bible. It inevitably is a 1611 authorized King James, but it doesn't have to be in other jurisdictions. Uh, it can be any volume of sacred law, Bhagavad Gita, the Quran, Talmud, whatever. Um, it will generally be for uh, on the night of an initiation, uh, the volume of sacred law of the candidate himself. So the only thing that makes any King James Bible, a Masonic Bible, is that there is quite a publishing industry, or certainly was quite a publishing industry, in printing the Bible with a extensive frontispiece, not frontispiece, uh, section, chapters, detailing all the references to stonemasons and the building of King Solomon's Temple and various other things in the front of the book, often with extensive sections, and American ones, of uh, Masonic presidents and, and things of that nature. But the, the Bible itself is simply the King James. Okay. Nine, nine times out of ten. So we got another question. The, what is the connection to using the Bible or Book of Law in their obligation? Uh, Not Book of Law, a volume of sacred law right. in their obligation. So now this is interesting. We can have much more open discussion today than my father's generation or his father's generation would because we recognize what aspects of what we do are secret uh, and what others we can discuss. So the volume of sacred law is referred to as the great light of Freemasonry, uh, light in terms of uh, spiritual light and light of knowledge. Within our ritual, we talk about a large part of our mandate is promoting knowledge, knowledge of God's creation, which is actually science. It is the liberal arts and sciences. It is an empirical understanding of the physical world we live in. But back to the volume of sacred law, a candidate is not taking an oath. He takes an obligation. And that obligation is to keep inviolate the secrets. He was not going to discuss anything that happens uh, within the, that lodge meeting uh, outside of broad details. As I say, an earlier generation would barely admit that they were Freemasons. We're far more open about it today, simply because we're aware it's all been published. Why the volume of sacred law? It's a symbol. It represents um, the word of God or the uh, his revealed will. Uh, I say he simply because the English language deals with that. There are, I'm sure, any number of Freemasons who worship or believe in a goddess as opposed to a god. Uh, there are many who believe in multiple gods. As long as there's a supreme one, we'll, that's all they have to answer is the question, do you believe in a supreme being? Yes. Doesn't, we don't ask if he believes in a whole lot of <laughs> gods, as long as there's one. So it is simply a symbol. It represents the presence or the uh, revealed will of God. All right. So let's go back to our, our topic now. Uh, we've segued a bit of um, uh, myths and, and uh, whatnot. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's that myth that we rule the world, that uh, 
the alum, the Illuminati is, is rules the world, and if you're a Freemason, you must be part of the Illuminati. And then there's also that uh, thing about you know uh, drawing the square and compasses over the uh, uh, buildings in Washington uh, and the layout of it all. What about those types of things? Well, let's let again uh, for for any any topic like this, we've got to go back to our history. So. Um, there was no question in the 1700s about uh, early 1700s of Freemasonry being uh, a powerful group trying to control world affairs simply because it wasn't that large. Uh, although you understand that for that time being mostly a Scottish, Irish, and, and specifically English group who were in the middle of building their uh, uh, world empire. Uh, obviously, a lot of Freemans free went out there and were part of that. Um, it doesn't really become an issue. We don't really get accused of malfeasance, uh, other than for religious reasons, until the French Revolution. And something weird happened on the continent where... Freemasonry, uh, as I say, in its English form, Scottish and Irish, were about a trade guild. They were about uh, physical laborers and how they felt that labor was a good thing. It was not punishment from God. It was a form of worship. They were building cathedrals to God. So they viewed labor as a good thing, as a form of prayer, as a form of respect. It had its own value. Whereas... The culture of the day generally viewed labor as as punishment from, it was uh, for original sin perhaps so freemasonry hits the continent in the mid 1700s and the europeans really liked the idea of freemasonry they didn't like the idea that uh, it was a, a trade guild so that was where we created this mythology that they came from the knights templar or originally just crusaders because of the whole chivalric uh, oral tradition, epic poems. Um, but it also became very popular for a growing middle class, for the minor aristocracy and a, a, a growing uh, middle class who wanted power, who were striving in their daily lives to find power, whether it was political or economic or otherwise. So those were the sort of men who were attracted to Freemasonry and by the, I don't know, let's call it the 1770s, the 1780s, well, specifically in 1776, a, um, a very young um, Jesuit-trained university professor in Ingolstadt starts a group called the Perfectibilists amongst his students, remembering that his students were all going to be the first and second sons of the aristocracy and of the, the ruling elite. And he created this little secret society that he called the Perfectibilists. He fairly quickly discovered that it wasn't going to get anywhere at that. He couldn't wait long enough until they were out and uh, changing the world. So he renamed it the Bavarian Illuminati. And his goal was to attract the shakers and movers of the day because he was quite the schmoozer. He hung out at an awful lot of cocktail parties or the equivalent of the day. Uh, remembering I say he was 27, 28 years old at this point. But he convinced a lot of men 
who were of a vaguely liberal or Republican view, which made them very radical, actually, when he come to Europe in the 17, uh, 1700s, uh, the ideas, well, three basic ideas, a separation of church and state, limits on the power of the state, and the emancipation of all, all people, not just landowners, not just men, but all people. So those were their three basic planks in their platform, if you will. That was the Bavarian Illuminati. Well, that was a little too radical for the ruling class of the day, and, and they were suppressed by, uh, what did I say, 1776, 1788, they were done. Um, uh, Adam Weishaupt uh, gets kicked out of uh, Bavaria. He goes over to Gotha, where he lives the rest of his life, writing long books, trying to explain what he was really trying to do. The problem was that a number of authors in England, one Jesuit who had been kicked out of France, and a Scottish professor of natural science who was way out of his depth, both wrote books for trying to describe who was responsible for the French Revolution. And they blamed the Freemasons to a certain degree. And both of oh, them were really powerful, eh? Well, that was it. Um, this was a time, and there are still many people who cannot see that quite often historical events just happen. Uh, but at that time, the strong idea was that something, there had to be somebody who made it happen. There had to be a person or a group. Things couldn't just happen on their own. And they certainly weren't about to recognize that the causes of the French Revolution were, uh, pretty much the excesses of the ruling class of the day. Uh, they weren't going to take the blame for it, they had to blame someone else. So they were going to blame the Illuminati, they were going to blame the Freemasons, they were going to blame blame, uh, blame um, literacy. Reading societies got a fair amount of the blame. So those both, both those books, when they were published, 1778, uh, uh, 9 and 80, because it came out over a number of years, were immediately trashed by anyone who knew anything about it. You can read to this day reviews in, in literary newspapers saying that these things were poorly researched, didn't make sense, and what have you. But what they did was created in the minds of the ruling class the idea that there was some group. Not necessarily Freemasonry, certainly not in England because the Freemasons by that time pretty much had uh, taken into its uh, into itself a fair number of the aristocracy. They made a point of of uh, electing a grand master who was of the royal family uh, as often as they could. So, and they constantly um, issued uh, statements about their loyalty to king and crown or uh, what have you. So that wasn't a big issue in English speaking Freemasonry, except 1776 was also. Uh, the beginnings of the American Revolution. And Freemasons, as we know, played a large role in that. Not a large number of Freemasons, and not Freemasonry itself, but a, a number of Freemasons were key players in that, whether it was George Washington or Paul Revere or any number of others. Um, so, to some English, yes. Freemasons were trying to, or Freemasonry, because 
people, I said earlier, can't make the distinction or find it difficult to make the distinction between individual Freemasons acting on their own and Freemasonry as a body. They somehow feel that since we've taken certain obligations on that volume of sacred law, that we somehow have to obey our Masonic leaders. Yeah, just try and tell me what to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, tell me um, what to do. But they get to tell us in lodge, and that oh, in lodge yeah. certainly. But that's yeah. all symbolic, and it's and it's all metaphorical. It has nothing to do with the real world. So, uh, but it created in people's minds' eye around, or in the leaders' minds around 1800, this idea that there was an Illuminati. It didn't help in the early 1800s that there was one sort of shiftless spy who spent most of his life sitting in cafe, uh, cafes in Paris talking, didn't really do anything, but he talked a lot and he managed to create, can't remember his name off the top, the idea that the Illuminati was a real thing. When we talk about Western or European revolutions, we tend to think about uh, the American, we tend to think about uh, the, the French of 1776. The real revolutionary period though was the mid 1800s. Uh, I don't know, the 1830s through the 1880s, when most European nations, whether uh, through a bloodbath or without any bloodshed, had a change in rulers. They either uh, kicked out their, their, their hereditary uh, royal family or else managed to sideline them into a, into a symbolic role. Um, and this happened, uh, to say, most European countries at some time or other went through some process of this, sometimes gradually, sometimes fairly quickly. And throughout all of this, the leaders kept not wanting to take the blame themselves for this groundswell, grassroots, revolutionary thinking, but wanted to blame somebody. It was easier to blame the non-existent Illuminati and in fact to create the environment for revolution uh, by oppressing the people. France was turned into pretty much a police state searching for revolutionaries. And if you become so oppressive, well, eventually just your average hunter on the street is going to get tired of it. And he's going to create his own secret combines and he's going to take back the streets. And it happens. Right. So if you're worried about backlash, blame it on somebody that doesn't exist. Oh yeah, and it and that that's the big lie, and it has worked forever. Uh, I'm sure it has worked in previous uh, ages, and it certainly works to this day. We had another question from a viewer. Um, uh, I think it's a myth that we can't recruit. Why is or isn't it that, or why is or isn't it true? Well, why would you think it's a myth? No, it is very true. So you come non-mason comes of his own free will and accord the the ritual now it varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction and working from working but basically in somewhere the wording will be that you you come because you've heard good things about about us you're not coming because you're looking to hook up with a business contact you're not looking to join because you want to enlarge your own business or you're looking for a deal from someone else's. There are no mercenary reasons that you're joining. It's the word in, in my working. Uh, that you um, come of your own free will and accord. And it clearly says in the ritual, no, and not in those exact words, but in a more uh, older language, that 
I wasn't asked to join. I come because I chose to join. And that's very important that that is not just symbolic or metaphorical, but it refers to you have chosen. You have, in your heart, said, there's something more that I want in my life. Uh, there's something uh, that I want to be of service to the community. Uh, I've heard that the Freemasons uh, are trying to improve themselves spiritually and intellectually, and they sometimes get involved in some public charity works, uh, but they just seem to be good guys when I see them or when I know any of my friends who are Masons, they just seem to have something indefinable and I want whatever that is. And you ask to join. That means, having asked to join, that once I'm inside the lodge, I can't kick, I can't complain that it wasn't what I thought it was, that I didn't get what I wanted out of it, because I asked to join, no one dragged me in. If we start asking people to join, first of all, and this is part of, of one working, I don't know how common it is in others, one of, one of the questions asked to a, a candidate when he first comes through the door is where were you first made a Freemason? And you answer in your heart, you were a Freemason before you were a member of the Lodge. Because Freemasonry, in my mind, is not a membership card. Freemasonry is a way of thinking. It is a way of life. And it's also an active process. You don't just suddenly poof, become a Freemason. You become a Freemason over years of contemplation, meditation, study, reading, talking to other Freemasons, thinking about your own life and what your role and relationship is with the rest of society, your family, your, your wife, your parents, your God, your society, your neighbors, all of that. It's an active process. It's not just paying dues every year. So if people get asked to join, they can complain about the fact that they didn't get what they thought it was about. You've got to right. come because you want to. Right. Not a myth. And uh, looking at the time, noting we got about 15 minutes left, were there any wow. particular <laughs> myths that uh, you wanted to, or legends that you wanted to uh, touch upon that we haven't uh, hit today? Well, it's interesting. I didn't realize we uh, meandered on so long. There is a lot. Uh, and uh, Grand Lodge of British Columbia and Yukon's website has an extensive list of just about every accusation that has been made against Freemasonry, uh, whether it's the Illuminati, uh, whether we're Satanists, uh, whether um, uh, we're part of, of any number of political or criminal organizations. It's gone on for years. One of my favorites, because I find it particularly amusing, there is within um, the televangelist Christian community an idea that there is such a thing as a Masonic curse. And this only appears in the last 30, 40 years, slightly before the internet comes along, but only barely. And the idea is that if you're... If you're having problems in your life, oh, you've lost your job, your wife left you, your dog died, whatever, maybe there's a connection and maybe, and this is often the case in the States, your father or grandfather or great-grandfather was a Mason 
and somewhere hidden in the attic is his old Masonic apron or his regalia or his Masonic Bible. There's a curse attached to that which is transferred to you. And the only way you can get rid of that curse is by sending that televangelist money. <laughs> and, and they're, they're out there. Um, I can't remember any names off the top, but I've got a few of them on our website. This is interesting. The one thing in common that everyone who attacks Freemasonry on the internet, on television, in films, have in common. The one thing they all have in common is they have something to sell you. Whether it's a, whether it's a videotape, a CD, um, essential oil that will lift that Masonic curse, whatever it is, they've got something to sell you. Um, be careful. And the uh, website that you mentioned, I want to plug that out there because um, in looking through all of the uh, things I'm now finding, you know, I've only been a member for 20 years, right? But um, there's so much good information on there. It's freemasonry.bcy.ca. And then if you go into the member services section, I believe that's where you uh, will find all that stuff. Is that um, um, I think so. Quite frankly, if you just go to Google and type in Freemasonry plus just about any other word and we'll be on the top page. Right, right. Okay. We get uh, partially because we've been around for a quarter of a century. So we've got a, a deep Google uh, penetration. Right. Uh, and partially because um, we get a couple of thousand visitors a day, which by some standards isn't particularly high, but considering that ours is a static website that doesn't really change that much, um, it means that a couple of thousand new visitors uh, every day are visiting and finding out about Freemasonry. And uh, it's an awesome site for that. We are now hosting um, more light nights uh, in our lodge, and that's once a month. And our it stems from our uh, mentoring committee doing regular weekly mentoring sessions whereby they end up finding themselves explaining to the new members what it is the words that they're working on memorizing and and uh, uh, the things that they're analyzing they they really delve into it and what they found was <laughs> the guys would come in with ridiculous information found online so we just now have just started pointing them to the Grand Lodge BC's website because uh, from what I understand, majority of the stuff that's on there has been uh, reviewed or vetted to some extent uh, so that it's not uh, false information. The, the power of, of our website is the fact that just about everything has a footnote. Uh, if uh, other than strict opinion pieces, it's going to tell you who the author is. It's going to tell you where and when it was published. Uh, right. So that's it's a uh, it's a pretty solid website. We are actually the website, the go-to place for the New York uh, Times. We got a phone call a couple of years ago asking for confirmation of something. We asked, "Why are you calling us?" And they said, "Well, yours is the website we go to." Uh, and I'm sure that uh, with this topic, we could talk for hours, and I could have tried to keep you on here longer, but I do know that you are uh, at, at your job at the Grand Lodge web uh, uh, head office there, and that our, our time is limited. But I would 
extend the invitation to come back and uh, revisit this topic uh, again when uh, um, you have another time to schedule in there where we can also have some of our other um, regular hosts on uh, who were really looking forward to uh, this conversation. Good. Well, been a little busy for the next couple of months. We're leading into our annual communication. Uh, but over the summer, are you uh, are you just as busy over the summer? Summer is pretty much the busy time because June, close to the end of June, um, right after the solstice, is our annual communication. So it's all the work leading up to that, and then afterwards is uh, is all the uh, the cleanup and and getting the uh, annual proceedings to the printers. All right. Yes, the good old printers are. Well, when you. Uh we'll touch base through the summer and we'll, we'll try to schedule another time for you to come back on. Uh, I, I sure do appreciate you having made the time today. Um, uh, we got a few minutes left. Is there anything else that you wanted to plug into? Well, uh, I understand that you're planning on coming down to the annual communication and, and hope to get some, uh, Recording done for a few more of these podcasts. You're there. Yeah, it's it's supposed to be quite exciting. Uh, Connor and I are looking forward to it. We're going to do a, a bit of a combination of podcast session as well as we're going to do a bit of a video blog. He calls it a, a, a vlog. He says oh, uh, <laughs> where we're going to run around Grand Lodge with our uh, our camera and uh, ask questions and and uh, record the. Uh, interactions with the different uh, lodge brethren and and possibly their wives uh, or, or companions that might be around uh, anybody who's willing to speak to us on camera anyways and then we're gonna bring it back and edit it all and put it together and release it as an episode so it's sounds, quite exciting sounds good well I'll certainly see you there and uh, see if I can be of some help to you when you're putting that together awesome happy to help Awesome. Well, thanks again for your time today. We really appreciate it. And um, uh, I guess uh, I my next view will probably be seeing you down at Grand Lodge in June. June 22nd. Excellent. Okay. So right. that will sign off for today. And uh, thanks again. And uh, to everybody listening, if you enjoyed this podcast, please uh, give us a review on, on uh, YouTube and uh, punch us out on Facebook. Uh, we really appreciate it. We've really grown. We've got now over 65 followers uh, and subscribers to our YouTube channel, and uh, we're, we're really enjoying it. So, um, oh, and uh, I've got a note there. Um, hello from Disneyland, no, Disney World Animal Kingdom from David Colbeth, our, one of our co-hosts. He'll be back on in a couple of weeks when he gets back from holidaying with his family. So, all right, everybody, have a fantastic rest of your day and um, uh, keep it on the level and keep it square. <laughs>